21 and verse 33, Luke 21, 33, and we are uh, <coughs> working on, again, the Olivet Discourse and that which is uh, Christ's prophecy concerning the things of the last days. Now, I've got 28 up here because we're going to read quickly from there before we get started, but Luke 21, 33 is a little verse with a few words that are just powerful. They're wonderful words. So before we begin, let's take a few moments for prayer and get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let us pray. Father, we're so blessed, we're privileged, we're honored to be able to come together in a free country, to be able to assemble ourselves, to open up your Word, to be able to read it, to sing praises to you with uh, right now without any fear of repercussion from the government or from uh, opposing uh, forces, if you will. But Father, we know the devil doesn't like us doing what we're doing. So Father, I pray that uh, we would make the most of this time. This time is a good time because it is time to feed upon your word. And Father, we pray that you'll nourish our souls with it so that we indeed will be better prepared to face the things that are going on in this world today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the parable of the fig tree. This is in the Olivet Discourse. He has given information concerning the first century church up to 70 A.D. He's given the four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the information concerning the uh, early church to 70, general information that concerns the uh, church age um, that will basically deal with us uh, all the way to the rapture. He's given information for the first half of the trib, second half of the trib, and then to answer the question they originally asked, what is the sign of your coming and when will be the end of the age? Here's the answer. It is found in the parable of the fig tree. Now the fig tree, it's a parable and people say don't build a doctrine off a parable, but you have to, and that's a valid hermeneutic, but what you have to do is find out is what you understand the parable to be documented in other places. And yes, indeed it is. And we're not going through all those other places. The book on the back has got all the reasons uh, that, that go along with it. But the, the parable of the fig tree is the sign that the Lord's return is imminent. And that's because Jesus is the one that said it. See, what he says in Luke 21, 28, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now, we've seen this. We've seen that at the, on the second advent, he'll gather together his elect from the four winds of the earth. These are all parallel passages that go in Matthew and Mark. In verse 29, he told them a parable. Behold the, the fig tree and all the trees. Now, the fig tree, Hosea 9.10, identifies that, that symbol for us. Your forefathers were the earliest fruit on the fig tree. So it's national Israel, and he's calling them, back, calling them back and referring them back to the Exodus generation. They walked out of Egypt, they established a nation, and the fruit was the conquest generation that went in and took the land uh, as they were supposed to do. Now they didn't take it fully as they were supposed to take it, and that's haunted them ever since. But what it did do was identify that symbol for us, the fig tree, and all the trees in context 
are the nations of that generation. Now, that's not happened before in the history of the church. People say, well, cycles go up and down, things come together and they fall apart. They've never come together like this. You had to have a northern ruler that was uh, the king of the north that was an absolute tyrant. And we find that now in modern day Russia. You have to have kings from the east. Notice the plural that is there. This group of nations, if you'll notice, the way they have aligned today are all polytheistic nations. You have the Confucianist, you have uh, China, which uh, although they are a uh, Marxist government, the people are predominantly Buddhist and Confucianist that are there in China. You have the Hindus there in India. You have the Japanese with their ancestor worship. The kings of the East are the polytheistic nations. The key, though, is they had to have 200 million man army. They did not have that many people alive on the earth in the first century. So that has come together. There needs to be a king of the south. Now, it doesn't have to happen until after the rapture, but they've already made moves toward that within the last 20 years. Gaddafi declared himself king of kings and lord of lords. He tried to take that role, but that didn't quite work out well for him. But uh, anyway, that uh, I, I can't help but say Daffy Duck when I talk about Gaddafi, because that's about how Daffy was, but uh, that's probably not real loving, and I apologize. But anyway, here is the king of the south, and he wasn't the king of the south. But after the rapture, uh, Africa will form under one king. Now, how easy is that going to be? Right now, they're predominantly controlled by Muslims. The only thing holding them back right now are the Christians, and when the rapture happens, what's going to hold them back? The restrainer is gone. So it's not going to take long when they see the other powers around the globe that are in existence for them to unify in order to try to, to fight them off. What about the king of the West? That's the Antichrist. He takes a ten-nation confederacy. When I know Europe's got, what, 16, 17 nations now. It doesn't make any difference. After the rapture, they'll form into a ten-nation confederacy, and he will defeat three of them in the process and set up, establish an eighth. He will basically consolidate all of Europe. And everything is in place for things to happen. And the Lord's never brought everything together for a major prophecy and then disbursed it. He's not ever done that before. So I don't think it's, it's really uh, wise to think that that's what he's going to do now. He said, the fig tree and all the, and all the trees. And notice he said in the Matthew-Mark passage, learn it. Learn as a disciple. That means it's going to be revealed over a period of time. You're going to have to not only be educated in it, but pay attention to what is going on. You're going to have to experience it learn the parable of the fig tree. And as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that the summer is now near. To these Jews he was talking to, when you start talking about the summer, you start talking about the harvest. They knew what he was talking about. The summertime is often viewed as the time of the millennial kingdom. The branch has become tender, puts forth its leaves. You know that the summer is near. So also, so you also, when you may see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Okay? Isn't that the question they asked to begin with? 
And he's answering the question. He's, they're not going to see it themselves. They'll see a part of the beginning of birth pangs up to 70 AD. But one stone's got to not be left on top of another in Jerusalem for the prophecy at the, the outset of the Olivet Discourse to, to be fulfilled. And he says, recognize the kingdom of God is near. And notice the Matthew and Mark passage that says, even right at the doors. And I mentioned that. Those are plurals. That's not one door into the kingdom. It's a plural. There's two doors into the kingdom. Then you have to study doors. Okay? Every time you study prophecy, you study the, the, the immediate context of what you're in. And then you go to the intermediate and remote as needed. That's the only way you can study prophecy and put the pieces together. And so what you find is how do the pieces fit together. There are two doors into the millennial kingdom. The first door is the rapture itself. Portrayed in Revelation 4.1. I, John, behold a door was standing open in heaven. Isn't that amazing how the Holy Spirit picked that word door right after he got through writing the letters to the seven churches, which were all prophetic. A door, because you don't see the church again until chapter 19. It's gone. It's an argument from silence, but it's a strong argument from silence that you have. And the second door is the door where? From earth, those who survived the tribulation, the new believers that go in to form the millennial kingdom. That's the second door into the millennial kingdom. So the word of God is very precise. It is very clear. Uh, Paul made a big deal about singulars and plurals when he said the promise was given to the seed of Abraham, not seeds in the book of Galatians. Who's the seed? The promised seed of the woman, the promised seed of Abraham, the Messiah himself. He is the heir of all things, not to the seeds of Abraham. Because that would have included some of the uh, uh, Arabic tribes out, that are actually out there. Verse 32, passage we covered last week. Truly I say to you, which when you see the truly's in there, it's usually the word amen. Amen, amen. Amen, I say to you, this generation. Ganea is a word for generation. It's not a word for race. Some people don't like what they read here, so they try to say, this race will not pass away, referring to uh, the Jews, until all these things take place. The word is genea, the word for race is another word, genos, and so it just is, doesn't work. This generation will not pass away till all these things take place. And we've looked at the length of a generation, because... That's, uh, that's fashionable now amongst um, prophecy nuts like I am and a whole lot of us are. It's fashionable to try and put a date on it. Uh, we're going to see something too about no one knows a day or hour here in just a second. But it's fashionable to try and put a date on the rapture. We can, we can guess and we can know the generation. But that other thing, we're not. In verse 33... I want you to look at this little verse that is so loaded. The heaven and the earth. It's all set out all by itself. The heaven and the earth. One earth in particular. This one in particular. 
will not pass away. Parerkomai is the word that's used, and it's a future tense that is used here. Heaven and earth, I didn't mean to say not, heaven and earth will pass away. Future tense is a prophecy. Future, middle, it will do it itself. Indicative is a historical fact. So it basically gives a prophecy, and this prophecy is a promise. So how much stock should you put in heaven and earth? It will pass away, is what it will do. Heaven and earth will pass away. Not may pass away sometime, will pass away. But look at the contrast. But my words. He's been giving prophecy now. We've been studying it for several weeks. It's actually contained in a couple of three chapters. We can read it a lot faster and we can explain it. My words will not pass away. Here is the same word that says pass away, par ercomai. It is a future middle indicative, same construction. But in front of it is a double negative, ume. Terrible English, wonderful Greek. Because the Greek takes the strong negative, u. And it adds a weak negative, may, and when it puts the two together, it says, absolutely not. Now, to me, this is so important. Because I, I, I read and I see people say, well, when it comes to prophecy, that's close enough. And then, of course, we've got the pan-millennialist that says it'll all pan out in the end. That's kind of the way that they, they view it. Yeah, pray it'll all work itself out. I don't need to know anything. You know, there are details that we still have questions about. And I think if we study more, we'll get more details answered. But it says, what he's saying, notice the increment, the unit here. My words. See, every word of God is inspired. Every, all scripture is God breathe and is profitable. Every word of it. So whenever prophecy is uttered, what Jesus just said, and encompassing this church age, the tribulational period, the second advent when he lights up the sky, okay, all these things, they're going to happen. My words will not pass away. That's as strong as you can say it. And it gets down to the very singulars and plurals in each individual word. When it talks about inspiration of the scripture, what Jesus claimed is that every single part of it is. Now we know it from other passages, but notice Jesus is functioning now as the prophet. The prophet identified in John 4, the woman at the well. Are you the prophet? You know what his answer? Yes, he was a prophet. A prophet has to be perfect, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. He can't have one thing out of place at all. Otherwise, they're not legitimate prophets. And that, what did Jesus said? This is, this is as clear as it gets. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows. That day is what's called a remote demonstrative pronoun. We normally connect the dots on that to the rapture. 
itself or the second advent on there. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The Son is speaking from his humanity. Obviously, as God, he knew everything that there was to know. He can't not know something. But he had limited his deity while here on earth. And he says, what this hour and day is, known only by the Father. Mark 13, 31, 32 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. See, three attestations there. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So what is he talking, talking about? Jesus points out clearly that one day the heavens and earth will pass away and a new creation will take their place. Now, Revelation 21, 22, John, under inspiration, gives us a lot more information about the passing away of this present heavens and earth and the creation of the new one. But we've still got a lot of questions about it. No, no question about it. Lord, how are you going to do this? What are you going to do? Well, does, he's going to do just what he said, right? Heaven and earth will pass away. That's a prophecy and a promise. My words will not pass away. That's a prophecy and a promise as well. 2 Peter 3.10 says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. If we exegeted those, we'd find out this is basically nuclear. It is absolute, total eliminate. Anything, the word for elements looks at the very basic building blocks of, of life in us. It looks at the carbon atoms, the hydrogen atoms, helium atoms. That's what it looks at. Those in the stuff that you had to learn when you're in chemistry on those on that chart of the elements, it's gonna be gone. That's what this says. It's gonna melt it all. It's interesting that one of the ways they make new elements is expose them to radiation. And they end up with a whole bunch more. Since, since, uh, since I learned that chart, they've added several more to it. And where did they find them? They didn't find them naturally occurring. They, they made them in a, in a lab. And he says, With intensity, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now see, this is Second Peter 3. How about Isaiah 65? Anything said about this in the Old Testament? Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Will we still know everybody? I think so. Will we still have our experiences? Yeah. Will anything about your old life and of sin be remembered? I think that's what it's talking about. It's totally erased. You've been totally forgiven. Jesus paid, Jesus paid it all. It's gone. No more. Isaiah 66, 22. And I also wonder how deep into eternity we're going to get when we don't even think about this present heavens anymore. Or earth. Isaiah 66, 22. Just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me declares the Lord. So your offspring, Israel, and your name, 
will endure. It's going to be taken away one day. And a new creation will take their place. And you say, how can he destroy the present heavens and the earth and not destroy us in the process? That's because he's God. Best answer I have is that we're in the hand of God. And whenever he gets ready to do all that, he just closes us up to protect us. Away, be gone, and it's gone. Bara, he creates, and here it is. Why? It's no big deal for, for God to do that. God's abode is not destroyed, but the physical universe as we know it will be annihilated. It'll be totally gone. It's interesting how people worship the stars, worship the planets, worship nature, worship all the creation of God. And what's God going to get rid of? The last idol. That's what he's going to get rid of. The last idol. It's going to be gone. As the word, notice the capitalization there, not one of his words will fail to be fulfilled. When he gives a prophecy, it's going to happen. When he gives a promise, he's going to keep it. That's what he does. That's who he is as God. The Lord's reputation is on the line with these prophecies. Now see, this, this takes, we don't think of God as having courage, but he does. Does he not? Doesn't he have courage to the nth degree? Because he didn't need to do any of this. <laughs> Contrary to popular opinion, he doesn't need us. He never needed us. He chose to share himself with us. Now that's an act of grace. Now he wasn't going to create another God. But what he was going to create was a creature that could relate to him. There's only one God. So he wasn't in the business of making other gods. Never has been. Never would be. So what he said was, okay, I will make a creature that can relate to me and we can have a love relationship forevermore. Did he need us? No. He didn't. Did he know how messed up we would be? Yes. <laughs> he did. Did he know that there would be a redemption that would need to take place? Yes. He did. He knew all this stuff from the beginning and he still chose to do it. And then there's a rebellion. Satan came into existence. And what's Satan trying to prove? That God made a mistake somewhere along the line so he can bring God down to elevate himself. That's his only hope. It's his only hope that he's got is hopefully God make him, made a mistake. And what did Jesus just say? All this stuff's going to pass away. My words won't pass away. See, that took courage. To do that. Took courage to leave heaven for us. It took courage to take on the form of a bondservant. It took courage to be like Adam. And have a volition that had the possibility of sin in it. That's hard to, to imagine. Theologians argue about that. Was he able not to sin? Not able to sin. We're not able to not sin. Is that believers? And as a believer, we become able not to sin. Jesus was like Adam. Jesus was able not to sin. Adam was able not to sin. The difference, though, is Jesus didn't sin. Now, this might be pretty deep theology, but it's really pretty simple. Jesus, true humanity, had that option, but never chose to sin. I can't imagine that in my own life. 
or yours. Because that's not who we are. But one of these days, when he, since he's given us his righteousness, we'll know what that righteousness is to fully live out. And we won't decide for him again. Just as his words will not pass away, context, neither will the generation of the return of the fig tree without all the events being fulfilled. It's going to happen. Now, heaven and earth will pass away. It's not in that generation. That's put way in the future with the future tense that is there. But in context, the day and hour, no one knows, really doesn't refer to the time of event. The events take place, but are the passing away of the heavens and earth. What did he just do? Boy, we throw that around with the rapture all the time, don't we? Ah. We won't know the day or the, I think it applies to the rapture, but contextually it's saying nobody knows when that present heavens and earth are going to go poof and cease to exist. The day and hour are the smallest recognized increments of time at the first advent. And interestingly enough, there is no Hebrew equivalent for hour. That's Greek terminology. An hour was first delineated by the Babylonians. So what do we have? The day and the hour, a small increment. And they started measuring things by the hour, in the sixth hour of the day, in the ninth hour of the day. They've measured them uh, in that re regard sense. Now, once the rapture is known, the second advent will be precisely known. Why? It's 2,520 days later. Actually, on the evening of the 2,521st day will be the second advent. Because it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. 2,520 days go by. On the next day, second advent, and the Lord just lights up the sky. It's, it's going to be tremendous to even we say we'll be a witness We'll be coming back with him on white horses or Harleys or whatever you think those might be. A divine transportation. I just think it'd be funnier than the Dickens if they were really white horses. And all of us that didn't care to ride horses were suddenly able to ride horses. But we come riding back with him on those horses. It would be kind of like one of those Star Treks that they had whales coming, passing through the heavens and all that stuff. And I'm going, <laughs> God does have a sense of humor. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Okay. Now, don't, don't, that's not speculation on Drew's part, so don't even go with, with that. But I just think it'd be fun. Now, we've seen the parable of the fig tree. We've seen the timing of this event brought into, into vogue. And the ninth point that we're going to look at here of the Olivet Discourse is a comparison to the antediluvians. Now this is one of those things that people get into and don't know where to stop. Because there are those that think right now that there's an angelic infiltration. They once again are cohabiting with females and with this they're producing these offspring and starting to produce these supermen and all that some of the movies would make you think almost it's possible 
But that's part of one of the movements that's floating around today is that all the aliens have done that. I don't think that's going on. I think that got stopped at the flood. But where does that speculation come from? Matthew 24, 37. And Matthew 24, 37, go and turn there with me if you want to. And if you get bored there, then turn open to Luke 17 because we're going to take a peek at that, at that as well. But in 2437, he says, for, this is explanatory. Explanatory, and what's it, what's it explaining what just happened in, in verse 36? He says, for the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I love the word translated, the coming of the Son of Man. Parousia is the word. It's one of those Greek words that, like so many of the Hebrews, is so very des descriptive because usia is a word that means to be alongside, to exist. It comes from the imi word, the to be verb. To exist in para means alongside. So the coming of the Son of Man is about him being alongside. That's what it's about. The coming of the Son of Man. This is the answer to the question they ask in Matthew 24, 3. What will be the signs of, your, of the times and the end of the age? So he's going to give a comparison here. And he says they will be, the coming of the Son of Man will be another future tense, pure prophecy, future event of Imi. Just like, this is hutos, which literally means in a similar manner, in like manner. Not exactly as, but in a similar manner too. The days of Noah. And we're all going back, hey, I remember that. That was a long time earlier in the Bible. Here we are in Matthew and he brings up Noah again. Isn't it amazing how the scripture itself forces you to compare scripture with scripture to figure out what it's saying? By doing that, he also talked, to it, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. It's another evidence of, of the accuracy of the Old Testament. In verse 38, he says, For as, as in those days before the flood, they... They, here is the generation of Noah, were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now let's think of this scenario a little bit. There's no rain on the earth. All it is is a dew that used to come up and water the plants. There's no rain on the earth in the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They were having a good time. And I really suspect that, that this gigantic ship uh, built on dry land or close to it, this gigantic ship was somehow not draw a crowd. I really think people came to see it. Because you know, prior to the flood, people have been entrepreneurs for a long, long time. And... <clears throat> Ah, hey, let's go see this lunatic out here building this boat because he says there's going to be rain. <laughs> they've never seen rain. 
there's going to be rain. And it's going to flood the earth. Ha, 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 ha. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You read what the scripture says about him. He's a preacher of righteousness. Now, what were they doing? Eating, drinking, marrying. They were just going on about their life in a normal way. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, notice this. In the last days of the age of Israel... Humanity gets so wrapped up in physical things, they miss the important things that are spiritual. Is that happening in this world right now? People are more interested in, in fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. People, places, things, and events. They're more interested in the things of this world. What did he just tell us? It's all going to go away. It's all going to pass with time. Now, verse 39, and they did not understand. They did not understand till the flood came and took them all away. Now, to me, it sounds like they took all away. And some people say, well, it was just a local flood and left a few scattered outposts here and there and all that. Not according to the scripture. According to the scripture, eight people survived this flood. That's what happened. Eight people. Noah, his wife, the three sons, and their wife. Interesting that they had one wife each. But that's eight people. And it's spelled out in more than one place in the scripture and took them all away. <clears throat> so will the coming of the son of the man. That's the title for Messiah. The son of the man. B, referring to the fact that, yeah, he's related to Adam. He's actually the last Adam, but he is the son of the man. Now, Jesus compares the second advent with the days of Noah. He compares the second advent to the days of Noah, and he had explained this to all of them before. He'd explained it to all of them before. Now, <clears throat> The disciples, he'd explain this to. So now if you've got Luke 17, go on to Luke 17 with me and verse 22. Luke 17 and verse 22. Excuse me for a second. This time he had other disciples with him. So when he brings up the fact of the days of Noah, this is not new to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now they may have taken it as new. They may have been asleep that time. But this time he's going over it. Now, Luke 17, 22, he said to his disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of the Man, him, and you will not see it. He's saying there are going to be days that will come people will long to see Jesus. Now, false teachers are going to point to false Messiah. Luke 17, 23. They will say to you, look here, look there. Do not go away and do not run after them. Verse 4. Because his return is going to be flashy. If somebody says, here comes Messiah, okay, there he is, he's out in the mountains, whatever, 
Don't go there. Because his return, everybody's going to know. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the, si the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So when Jesus comes back, he's not going to sneak in and pull people out. And I think this is rapture and second advent, quite clearly the second advent. But the rapture, we're going to be caught up to meet him in the clouds of the sky is the description we get. So why don't we stay with the literal? He's going to pull us out of here. Now, one out of six people on the planet profess to be Christians. Whether there's that many or not, I don't know. But in any event, there's going to be a significant loss of people around the globe. And will they go, what happened? It looks like when he comes back, everybody's going to know. It's him. Now, they're going to explain it away. Uh, they're going to explain it away as, as spacemen coming back to pull us out. I mean, after all, anybody saw the movie Independence Day knows they can make spaceships big enough to do such a thing as that, and they can pull you out of here. And then we had these people that uh, committed suicide because they were going to go meet some spaceship in the sky coming through not 10, 15 years ago, and I don't think they did. They just, anyway. Now he says, here is the lightning, okay. But first, he says, he must suffer. Verse 7, we're still in the context, 1725. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So when the Son of Man comes, it's not going to be flashy. He's not talking about First Advent, is he? He's talking about a future event. His return will be at a time like the days of Noah, and here it comes again in Luke 17, 26. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were give, being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, when you start thinking about this, the Lord told them to go into the ark. He brought all the animals to them. Noah didn't go on safari with his sons and herd these animals into the ark. You read what it says. God brought the animals to him. And he put them up there in the ark and he had plenty of space. And if you want to see how he could have done it all, there's a place in Kentucky now that's a life-size version of it and, and uh, looked like they've got a pretty good idea how it could all fit and how it could all work. Keeping in mind that there weren't 50,000 species that they had to put two of every kind in. They just had to put the kinds in there, the biblical kinds. Now I find it interesting because... When it started to rain, we've been around some pretty good rains here, right? And what are these people going to be doing? Because here the ark is shut, the Lord has sealed it shut, and it starts to rain. And they're going, I've never seen anything like this before. You think some of them took a bath in the rain maybe for the first time or whatever, and they're out there and, oh, this is no big deal, and it rains the first day. Okay, and you know, with all the rainfall that came down, they've estimated that if the pre-flood canopy precipitated out, it only raised the water level on the planet 
maybe a foot. So how did it get <laughs> deep enough to cover the highest mountains? Well, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. The fountains of the great deep broke open and subterranean water came up and that's what brought about the, the majority of the water out of, out of the flood. But what I find is interesting is it says, and the ark rose up, and this is cool, and the, the English translations say, and it floated on the water. But the word for float is halak, and then halak is the word for walk. See what happened? The ark walked on the water? Sound like somebody else? Walking on the water? What happens at the rapture? What happens at the rapture? Everything is gone, but the, but the judgments of the tribulation don't start immediately in an intense level. They begin to be poured out, just like the judgment at the flood. I think that's often overlooked in what happens and the way people interpret things and look at things. These judgments grow. The four horsemen of the apocalypse come out. The judgments keep intensifying over the course of seven years. They keep getting worse and more and more intense. Now here, just like the days of Noah, he'd already told them that once. And now he tells these four again. In verse 28, it says, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. This time is going to be comparable to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah was the luscious part of that part of the world at the time. Because remember, Abraham gave his nephew Lot the choice. You want to go this way, you want to go that way, but we got to separate because God told me to leave you back in Ur. And I didn't leave you back in Ur. So he's not blessing me, we got to go different ways. So Lot looked down at the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. So I'll take that place. Typical, kind of greed after the form of Balaam almost and so he ends up going down there and as you study Sodom and Gomorrah where the judgment was instantaneous remember the two angels went in and they got Lot and his family and got them out of there after Abraham negotiated in such a, a dramatic way that's a picture of the rapture because they went in and pulled them out the angels it said in the English, took them by the hand. In the Hebrew, it says, they stuck to them like glue. It's a word that means to adhere. It's a, it's a word of adhesion. So when the angels took the hand of, of Lot, his wife, and the daughters, they couldn't get away. They were stuck. Now, some people would just as soon stay here after the rapture so they could gather all their goods together, sell all their stock, and go have a big party somewhere. It's not going to happen. When he comes back, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, whether you're awake or asleep, when the trumpet blows, you're gone. Okay? The word rapture comes from harpazo, which means to snatch out of danger. 
to grab. It's not a matter of, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll go with you. No, the decision is already made. He's going to come get his own, take him to himself. One must leave behind earthly things. Luke 17, 31, on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back, remember Lot's wife. When it is time for the judgment, get out of Dodge. Now, that's going to be good advice in the tribulation when you see the abomination of desolation sitting where it should not be. Leave. Flee to the mountains. There are things when you see impending judgment. Now, what are the days of Noah? And now you go to Genesis chapter 6. Because we've got to take a look at the days of Noah in order to properly understand this. These days grew out of a time of great blessing. See, Genesis 6.1, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. That's a blessing. Families were happening. The earth was not yet full, but it was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and they were working on it. So it was a time of great blessing. They embraced Satan and his forces. Does that sound familiar? Maybe a time of great blessing on this planet? I know some places were blessed more than other places, but what happens when you go into the land and things start to go well with you? What was the warning to the Jews? Be careful. It says, And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Sons of God are Job 1, 6, Job 2, 1. These are the fallen angels. These are the ones that were, were the problems. And they, at that point in time, were able to go in and cohabit with the women. And it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he's also flesh, nevertheless his days shall be 120 years. So God gave them time to repent. You know, Israel came back in the land. It's back in the land, the last generation's ticking. Why didn't he just go ahead and take us all out? He's already fulfilled everything he needed to do. He's giving more people, more people time to repent. 120 years back prior to the flood is what he, what he gave them. Now, what was happening is that that generation was producing another generation of godless people. Now, what's going on right now in our nation and around the world? People are becoming more and more godless. Who'd ever thought that a third of this nation would be proclaimed atheist? And that's about where we are right now. They no longer believe in God. One nation under God. How easy is it going to be to get that taken off our, our money? To take out of, uh, off of anything. One nation under God. God gave them his time to repent. They were producing a, another generation of godless people. The Nephilim, it says, were on the earth in those days. Now, and also afterward. Nephilim means giant. If you understand, its root meaning is a word that means giant. It's easier to understand. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, men of renown, men of a name, men of a reputation. This is the foundations of mythology. 
basic roots of mythology, and out of that grew all kinds of mythology that was there. But its roots were found here. Angel men that were giants, Nephilim. But giants can also refer to other giant races of people that did not intermingle with the, uh, with the uh, angels. And also afterward, Nephilim is only used here in, the, in one place in the book of Numbers. And it's when the spies went in to think of what the context of that verse. The spies went into the land to see what was there in the land of Canaan. And they came back and they said, the Nephilim are in the land. And the Anakim and the Zumim, see those all IM endings in there? Those were giant races that were there in the land of Canaan. Very tall people. So Anakim means, or Nephilim means simply a giant. Could it include the dinosaurs? It's possible it's included in that title. And it is, but it doesn't prove it one way or another. Now, Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Here's the real problem, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the problem. And the Lord was sorry he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now this is the, the emotions attributed to God that I believe he has that are perfect. Perfect emotion. The judgment was set, and the Lord said... I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. For man, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made them. It basically said it repented the Lord, and that takes a study all of its own, but it, the, the Lord is not a man that he should repent. The word means basically to change his mind, and what happened is that... that animals or man started doing one thing and it moved to a different element of his of his essence from grace and love it had to move to justice and righteousness so there's a that's a different expression and he says but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord for some reason they don't like to translate the word grace in the Old Testament some dispensationalists say, well, the New Testament's the age of grace, the Old Testament's the age of judgment. But if it wasn't for grace, there wouldn't be anybody alive. And this word favor is the word for grace, ken, C-H-E-N is the, the Hebrew word for it. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. He said it's turned into an absolute mess here on, on planet earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, referring back to these angel men and this new generation of um, godless people. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. You shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
So that's the days of Noah. What's characteristic of the days of Noah? Violence has filled the earth. Unrighteousness has filled the earth. All a man's thoughts were only evil all the time. Now, evil sometimes has a good side of it. But the fact that all men's thoughts were evil indicates that it's a very active type that is going on. The return of the days of Noah brings some incredible promises to Israel, a new covenant. I was going to read Isaiah 54, but I haven't. We don't have time this morning. Now notice here too, the presence of great spiritual leaders in that generation will not postpone the judgment. Ezekiel 14, verses 12 to 14. Whenever this time of judgment occurs, there will be some great spiritual leaders without question. But it's not going to postpone it. When the Lord gets ready to administer justice, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. So there can be some spiritual leaders there. He says, the spiritual leaders, it's still left to each individual, whether or not they will be one of the delivered. The victors will be the ones who trust God, Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah. Strange how his name pops up, isn't it? Being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is according to faith. Noah's ark became an incredible picture of God's protection. Now 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. 1 Peter 3 is, talks about, it says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. What's that? That's the, the angel men who got locked up, who were put into Tartarus, according to Jude, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. See, the word of God says eight people came through it. No more than that. Eight people came through it. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now, it saves you as a picture. Corresponding to that is the word antitupos. It's only used two times in the New Testament. And it's a type against another type. One is a symbol set against another symbol. Baptism is a symbol. And it is set against another symbol, which is Noah's Ark. And it is saying that water baptism is now a better picture of salvation than Noah's Ark was. But Noah's Ark was a tremendous picture of salvation. 
you're entered into union with Christ, you go into the ark. It's sealed over, sealing of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's a beautiful picture of salvation. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. See, he's not talking there about the, the, the physical act of the water, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So Noah's Ark was a tremendous picture of salvation, a picture of God's protection. But now being in Christ is so much better, and water baptism portrays that. Some of the righteous will write out the destruction. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, If God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So when the flood happened, all those angel men were locked up, is what it appears, and that was prohibited from happening again. So I don't believe the human race is being infiltrated by fallen angels or demons anymore. Even though there's actually been some pop songs written, portrayed, and sang in the last 20 years that, uh, that kind of indicate that that's still going on. The application. Lose, lose desperately sought after lifestyles by losing your life to the Lord. Luke 17, 33. Look after he gives that prophetic discourse. He gives an application. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will preserve it. How much of us does God want? All of it. Every single bit when it says love the Lord your God with all of your heart soul mind and strength it doesn't mean just the parts you feel comfortable with it means all of it that's what that's a high calling and you know it's not we're not able to do that in our own flesh we're just we can't we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our life to remotely enter into that place that we need to be let us pray. Father, thank you again for your prophetic word. Thank you again for the challenges set in front of us. Thank you again for giving us the, the, the ability to see what's going on in this world and see that it's not out of your control. You know exactly what's happening. It was forecast. It was prophesied. We know that every one of your words is going to come to pass. And Father, it's not that you... You condone evil, but Father, you certainly let it, run it, let it run its course so that a maximum majority might make their decision to trust your Son as their Savior. And Father, we pray that's what will happen, that all the more will join in to this amazing family that you have redeemed for yourself from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. We are honored to be part of it. Let us share your word with those who are not yet. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.